Welcome to the Auckland Unitarian Church. 2021 was tough for the whole human community. The obvious pain was the COVID pandemic, but the weather the last few weeks in Auckland has been painfully hot, and we dread that the coming years are going to be hotter still. It's also tough that we usually have no children in this service. Our Zoom program doesn't appear to meet their needs, so our leaders will be rethinking that issue over the next month. In the sermon today, I'm inviting you to reflect on the place of our religion in all this suffering, and it will end, as usual, with discussion. This is a heavy topic, and in fact I will be coming at it from an atheist point of view, but it's a friendly atheist point of view. I even did a t-shirt about it. (laughs) So I'll be asking the questions, but I'll be aware of the religious and non-religious people in the discussion. We are good at discussions. Last week we kept it up for two hours. Welcome to our visitors. I hope you have brought some food for thought as well. Today's reading is very sad as well. It's from the Jewish Bible, the book of Job, chapter 1, starting at verse 13. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in his elder brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were ploughing and the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell on them and carried them off and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another servant came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was speaking, another servant came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in the eldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came across the desert, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell and the young people, and they are dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. And that started a long debate about why God would let a good man receive so many disasters. To go with the story of Job, I've chosen for our candle lighting saying, something from humanist leader Bertrand Russell. Although both love and knowledge are necessary, love is in a sense more fundamental since it will lead intelligent people to seek knowledge in order to find out how to benefit those whom they love. But if people are not intelligent, they will be content to believe what they've been told and may do harm in spite of the most genuine benevolence. My sermon today says, let's stop making apologies for God. She's a total nuisance. In the Christian circles I grew up in, people were constantly saying how good God was. They blindly ignored all the grief and harm in the world. If anybody else drew attention to the harm, they'd come up with excuses, like God sent this to test you. If you pointed out that God had nothing whatever to help you through these troubles, after you prayed for help and nothing happened, they'd say, God always answers your prayers. Sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes it's no, and sometimes it's wait. <laughs> I was not be- very old before I realised this was total rubbish, 
because that means that absolutely anything can be called God, and in practice, that's the same thing as there being no God at all. So I'd like to talk about the claims that religious people make for God and the major excuses they make when she doesn't deliver. One of the claims is that God is the source of all the love and kindness in the world. That claim is denied regularly, even by religious people. In the 16th century, St. Teresa of Avila, who was a leading member of the Carmelite order, gave a speech to the people in, her, in the order that she founded. Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now on the earth but yours. Well, what do you think? Teresa had a very reasonable, responsible attitude, but one that came with exaggeration. It's not only nuns who do good in the world. Kindness and help and comfort are also given by people in all religions, and atheists as well, worldwide. Thank God they do. And a very point was made by the Methodist founder, John Wesley. He once wrote a sermon called A Caution Against Bigotry. He made the point that people from all religions did good things. Even people who don't believe in God do good things. And Wesley took two logical conclusions from this. He said, well, if they do all these things, if they didn't do all these things, God's work would not get done. And making the point even further, he said, it's not enough for us to acknowledge these good people who share different beliefs. We need to encourage them, because if they get couraged, they will stop doing those things. God's work will not be done, and we will be to blame. Wow. <laughs> but Wesley also missed the logical objection. If God acts so widely, he is redundant. It would make no difference whether you believed in her or not. Now, to be fair, I add that God does make some difference. Stories about her are used in churches to encourage just this kind of kindness. So St. Teresa's advice was not pointless. It was just a bit exaggerated. It is just a story. That should be acknowledged. Same thing goes for John Wesley's remarks. They are a great encouragement to open-mindedness. But um, without his advice, some of that bigotry would still continue. My second point is that God has an anger management problem. That's a quote from a Jewish comedian a few years ago, and it has its funny side, but also a horrific side, far worse than Christians taking credit for all the kindness in the world. When I was a kid, I was brought up in a liberal Christian home. I don't recall my parents ever teaching me about hell, but they left a Christian picture book on their bookshelf one day, and I couldn't resist having a peek at it. The scariest picture showed a man being tortured by devils, and they were throwing a dice to find out who they would torture next, and another person was looking on with horror, wondering which way he should go. 
Another picture was not so scary till he read the caption. It showed two bears coming out of the forest. The caption was a verse in the Bible saying that when some children teach the prophet, teased the prophet Elisha because he was bald, God sent two bears out of the forest and they came out and tore the children to pieces. These Bible stories had me in shock, but also fascinated. And I sneaked back to that book a number of times just to feel that mixture of horror and excitement. For my liberal church made excuses for the idea of hell. They said God would not cause pain to anybody, but hell was the loneliness of being without God. Well, I would have thought that a person who consigned people to eternal loneliness was also missing something in the compassion department. I deleted that from my theology. I recall at the trial of Brendan Tarrant for terrorism last year, many of the Muslim witnesses said how they would not be intimidated, very brave of them. A few said they forgave him, but I stuck in my craw the two who took comfort in the thought that he would be judged by God after he died. The subject of a vengeful Muslim God was also raised in the media recently. I didn't record the quote, but I record the comments of a Muslim person who responded. He said this kind of vindication was not for Muslims to do themselves. It was something only Allah should do. But that doesn't wash with me either. Like the children's picture book that scared the daylights out of me as a child, a vengeful God would scare the daylights out of any Muslim child who read it. I myself read the bulk of the Quran a couple of years ago, and this picture of divine retribution came up not just a few times, but almost every page. Some of them are gloating about the pain that God is going to inflict on these people. For no other crime, they're not believing in him. Before I misjudge the Muslims too much, I point out that the Christian book of Revelation is far more graphic than the Quran. It has a large proportion of the human race being tortured by plagues, monsters and armies. The armies were led by Jesus, who was ludicrously portrayed as a lamb, a symbol of him being an innocent victim when he was crucified. And the book of Revelation turns him into a mass killer. This particular lamb had seven horns and a sword coming out of his mouth. What a tortured, twisted viewpoint. There is really no excuse for a God who does that. And there's a huge discrepancy between this and the statement that he is a God of love in the same New Testament. A Swiss psychiatrist in the early 20th century, Carl Jung, put his knife in on this discrepancy. He said that John who wrote the New Testament passages had a mental disorder because in his letter he gushes over the idea that God is love. In the book of Revelation, he makes God a monster. He says this God must, this writer rather, must have a mental disorder. His intense statement about love showed he was in denial of his hatred and it was denied in his vision of the Revelation. I would point out that these were two different Johns. The New Testament writers had the same name. Um, but the people who say the Bible was inspired by God, they're the ones with the mental problem. The only way to defend these statements is to say they were not written by God at all. They're written by people, some of them with bad attitudes, some of them with good attitudes, someone, some of them torn between the two. 
or maybe they just were lacking in curiosity and didn't spend much time thinking about it. At the same time, of course, we skeptics should not make the same mistake of accusing all Christians of being the same. They're not all the same. Many Christians reject this idea of God altogether. My third example is an atheist attack. This particular idea of God didn't originate with religious people. It came from Karl Marx. He said religion was like an opium for poor people. It was part of their oppression. The connection is not obvious in my view, but this criticism relates to the idea of heaven, not hell, which is ironic. He said if poor people believed in heaven, it would ease their pain and that would have the effect that they wouldn't rise up and take political action against the rich people who were oppressing them. I have a couple of criticisms of Mark because I don't think the idea of heaven was invented by rich people particularly, but I think he was accurate in saying that religion can offer false comfort and that can make people reluctant to complain about evil, so it serves that purpose whether it was designed to do that or not. But a psychological study I read just this week gave a different side to Karl Marx. He studied the political views of religious and non-religious people in the United States and found that religion led to political action. It didn't put them to sleep. It motivated them. These were evangelical churches, but the report said their churches provided a meeting place where they could discuss their concerns about how badly they were being treated and could take political action. The psychologist contrasted this with Karl Marx, but he said Marx is right in principle. But Marx was talking about a different religious background. He was talking about Germany in the 19th century. But I thought the point was made all the same. Religion may make people avoid political protest in one situation, but it may make them take political action in another situation. And I would go on to say, in the 20th century, liberal Christians have become much more political by reworking the idea of the kingdom of God. Throughout much of Christian history, the kingdom of God was seen as something that happens in the distant future at the end of the world, with poor people becoming rich and rich people becoming poor. This is called eschatology. It means the theory of the end of the world. But in 1935, a British Bible scholar, C.H. Dodd, published a book about the parables that Jesus told, and he said the kingdom of God is here and now. He used the term realized eschatology. And he based it on a statement of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is amongst, amongst you. Strictly, Dodd said, that meant the kingdom was there in the life of Jesus. But Dodd went on to apply it to our modern situation. He said, we too are the ones who have to bring in the kingdom of God. A similar idea was picked up in New Zealand. The welfare state was described as the kingdom of God in action. But this belief in the kingdom of God is also open to question. The first complaint I have is that I want to live in a democracy, not a kingdom. This theology creates the idea that liberal Christians have a royal right to be called spokesmen for God, even when they hardly believe in God anymore. Another recent example came from my wife Marion, who was a leader of the Methodist Mission. I had just got my third COVID jab last week, and I was surprised that she didn't do the same. So I asked her why. She said it was because of social justice. I couldn't follow that at all. 
asked her, what has social justice got to do with getting vaccinated? She said, well, the World Health Organization is that it's important to spend money for COVID action and injections in Africa rather than New Zealand. For two reasons. One, that the need is greater there and they can't afford it. But the second is, it's good sense to stop COVID in Africa, otherwise it will spread out from there to the rest of the world. I thought, well, I've got this vax because I'm in an vulnerable age group in the health group. My wife doesn't care whether I catch COVID. So I said to her, why not find out how much your vaccination would cost and donate the same amount to the United Nations charity, which is concerned about this. Well, a couple of days later, she did get vaccinated. <laughs> she didn't tell me at the time, but she told me later. <laughs> so social justice can also be an excuse for God. It says God is too busy to care about people in New Zealand and Africa at the same time. The issue, um, next issue is science denial. That's such a well-known uh, subject that I won't go to it in detail, but I'll use Galileo as an example. The church's opposition to Galileo was a massive blunder. It conflicted with the Bible, so they rejected it. Some of us saw a play about Galileo in Auckland a few months ago, and it still shocked me. I knew about his science, but I hadn't appreciated the emotional torture that he was put through by the Inquisition. It was mainly just isolation under house arrest and a ban on his writings. But the show vividly illustrated how this broke him down and made him do a public denial of his own statements, and they did threaten him with physical torture over a number of years. Now that was 400 years ago, and was an awful excuse for God. But to bring us up to date, I skip back to our own time and Auckland, and we note that Brian Tamaki is a science denier. He encourages people not to get vaccinated. This arises from his conservative religious beliefs about God. But I immediately noticed all the exceptions of religious people who responded to the science, including our own church, but more surprisingly, the Mangaree Assembly of God, were just as theologically conservative as Timothy, but they encouraged their people to get vaccinated. They even set up a centre to help it happen. And one of the, one of the Mangaree Assemblies of God was very unfairly criticised for being on the wrong side of science. I wrote a letter to the Herald saying, not all Christians are science deniers. So this refutes the atheist assumption that Christians are all science deniers. Some are, some aren't. And some people deny science on some issues, but not on others. Now it accuse these bigoted atheists of being history deniers. They are getting their frame of reference back from the time of Galileo, when Christians really were anti-science, but they've ignored the huge change of thinking in church circles today. They are blind to the religious people of their own time. Looking for a pattern in all this, we could be swamped by all the detail. But I would stress one overall aspect, that God is just a character in a story. We should encourage people to question their gods with scepticism, but also with empathy. And the Jewish people are experts in this. They have been doing it for over 2,000 years. The extreme example of Jewish 
scepticism, in my view, is the book of Job. I read you earlier the story of the suffering that happened to Job, but that was just the start of a huge discussion about why he suffered. In the story, three of his friends come along to comfort him, but they all bring different explanations of why God let this happen. The book has dozens and dozens of excuses, and Job rejected them all one by one. But to my mind, the very worst excuse these friends made, they said to Job that God would punish him. Why? For asking so many questions. Now this goes full round the circle. It blames the victim for his own suffering and pins that blame on God. But Job had an answer for that as well. He said, miserable comforters are you all. I could have said those things if I were in your place, but I would have comforted you. So this book is not just about God, it's about the right to ask questions about God, especially when you are in trouble. It's a Jewish pastime, asking questions about God. The musical Fiddler on the Roof was on TV here two weeks ago. It's about a very um, devout Jewish father who keeps making argumentative prayers to God. It's set in Russia during the revolution and it says how badly Jews were treated there. Always is focused on one family. One of his daughter marries a communist, for instance, driving his father to distraction. So summing up, we've looked at five ways people make excuses for God. I think the overall problem is it makes people afraid to ask questions. So God becomes a symbol for extreme one-sided thinking. But the answer is to keep on listening to people who are in trouble and not discourage them with demoralising stories about God. So after this, we're going to have our discussion groups, um, not straight after this, and I would suggest the two questions you might ask are, what kind of comfort would you give to people in deep trouble? Would God be part of your answer? And the other question, what kind of comfort would you like to receive yourselves? Thank you, and it's now time for me to extinguish the candle. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we carry in our hearts until we are together again. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for your participation in this service.